This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so excited to have John Dyer. John is uh, the author of a new book called The Facade of Excellence, Defining a New Normal of Leadership. John, if you would, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, the work that you're involved in. All right. Thanks. First of all, thank you for having me, and uh, I really appreciate the the invitation. Uh, I think what you all are doing is fantastic. Um, I think that the healthcare industry is one of the areas that could benefit the most from team-based improvement. Um, in fact, uh, I have a daughter who has several medical issues, and we were just in the hospital uh, last week. She's doing fine now, but I have spent several days uh, over the course of the last several years uh, in hospitals, and uh, it always fascinates me all the different processes that go on uh, in order to make a patient healthy, but also to make sure that all their needs are being met. So uh, again, I, I really congratulate you on what you're trying to do and, and uh, welcome the opportunity to help in any way I can. As far as my background, I've been in the continuous improvement business for over 38 years now. So I was back involved in the very early days before there were any books written on Lean or Six Sigma or any of that sort of thing. Uh, I was uh, at General Electric at the time. And uh, very early on in my career, I got interested in uh, how employees get involved, how they can help contribute to making improvements happen, how you can uh, change a culture to embrace um, collaboration amongst all levels within an organization. Um, so the GE executives knew that I was interested in this. And so they uh, asked me to go into kind of one of those dream jobs where for, for two years, I got the opportunity to go around the country collecting best practices and then uh, bringing that information back and educating uh, the executives at the major appliance division within uh, General Electric. Hmm. Uh, during that time, I got the opportunity to spend time with some of the greats within this field. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, w. Edwards Deming is someone who I really admire and looked up to, and I got to spend uh, several days with him. And in fact, in my office here, I have a uh, picture of Dr. Deming and myself with a handwritten note from him to me, and it's framed, and I, I very much treasure that. Um, but I also got to spend time with like Stephen Covey back in those days, and uh, uh, a guy by the name of Brian Joyner, who wrote the team handbook. Uh, I also got to go around and uh, visit all the GE divisions and learn what they were doing, and uh, I got to go through the uh, original Six Sigma training at Motorola University uh, with the people who actually developed the courses back before they gave out belts. So this was way back in the day. Um, and then, like I said, I would then educate the GE executives on these different uh, tools, methodologies, techniques. And then uh, the head of major appliances asked me to actually apply what I had learned. 
So he sent me to Bloomington, Indiana, where we made side-by-side -side refrigerators. Uh, and at that time, if you had bought one of our refrigerators, there was a 50% chance that it would uh, need repairs in the customer's home under warranty. So uh, not, not the best in quality. Mm -hmm. Well, um, they gave me all the technical resources in the plant and basically a, a clean sheet of paper and said, you know, we want you to apply what you've learned. Um, so we set up teams all throughout the plant. We went to focus factory organizational structure. Uh, we made significant changes and uh, saw tremendous results. Um, the quality improved substantially. The output improved substantially. But more than that, the uh, uh, culture improved substantially and the employees really got on board and they felt heard for the first time and they felt engaged and they could see the, the progress um, that was being made. Soon after that, I uh, left General Electric and joined a company called Ingersoll Rand. Um, I was with them for several years. They made products like uh, Bobcat front-end loaders at that time, club car golf cars, um, Schleg locks, Thermo King refrigerated units, so a pretty wide variety of products. And uh, we took the same things that we did at General Electric and applied them in several plants there and saw the same kind of results. Um, and uh, I worked my way up to a corporate vice president level within the company, um, promoting Lean and Six Sigma on a global basis. And then decided that after doing that for several years that I would go out on my own and start my own consulting company. And I've been doing that now for about 17 years, uh, oh, wow. so quite, quite a while. I started writing about nine years ago for a magazine called Industry Week. Um, so I've had uh, many articles uh, posted by them and published by them. And they also have a, a best plants competition that I'm a judge for. And I've been doing that for about nine years now. And uh, anyway, one of those articles turned out to be quite popular uh, to the point where a publisher saw it and said, hey, he called me up one day and said, would you be interested in turning that into a book? And that's what led to uh, the facade of excellence being published. So that's my background in a, in a nutshell. Well, well, thank you, John. That, you know, it's quite an, you know, an impressive background. And, um, you know, uh, especially like that touch in the beginning where you you mentioned, unfortunately, that, that you've had some recent experience in the healthcare industry, but I think that'll help guide our conversation a little bit more. Um, but let's start with your book. You know, the, the title, The Facade of Excellence, um, you know, is very provocative. Can you tell us what, uh, what, what do you mean, what are you describing when you're talking about a facade of excellence? Right. You know, um, when I was uh, doing some research for the book, I went online and asked a pretty simple question. I, I said, you know, if you could describe in one word, what is the main ingredient for making team-based improvement a reality? What would that word be? And I ended up getting over 100,000 responses. But the word that came up the most often was leadership. The second word that came up the most often right behind leadership was commitment. So if I really do think those two things go hand in hand. And so it's kind of like, well, what do we mean by leadership? 
what is what do we you know what exactly is that? Um, so I started doing some research and thinking about you know the role that leaders play in a team-based improvement initiative, and and came to the conclusion that you couldn't describe leadership in just one way. There are several different styles of leadership, and each style is important to use at that particular time in the growth of the organization's ability to work as a team and, and to be empowered and, and create collaboration. So in other words, if you've got an organization that's never worked as a team before, and you throw in a, a leader that says, all right, now I want everybody to be empowered and I want everybody to be a team, they're probably going to fail because they haven't yet gone through all the necessary steps required to become a empowered team. Uh, just like if you had a organization that had developed over the years and become a, uh, a, a well-oiled uh, team machine, and all of a sudden you threw in a leader that was more of a dictator, uh, then all of a sudden those employees are going to get extremely frustrated and uh, either get the leader removed or they're going to start quiet quitting or uh, resigning. Because once you have experienced what it's like to work in a team-based environment where people are really being heard and have an impact on their processes, and you then take that away from them by putting in a, a leader that doesn't support that type of a organization, the whole thing is going to come you know, crumbling down. So the facade of excellence, I have seen many, many organizations over the years. Like I said, as a judge for a best plants competition, I've seen many, many um, businesses, plants, both and also non-manufacturing. I work with government groups. I work with nonprofit groups. And uh, it's amazing to me how many organizations say they're doing team-based improvement, but when you really start peeling the onion back and, and break through the facade, you discover that um, it's not that real or sustainable because the leaders haven't yet gotten on board. Yeah, they may be going through the motions, but they're not um, fully embracing it. Yeah. So, you know, I think you also said just, you know, especially non-manufacturing, a lot of the sectors are early in their, you know, journey. And, and we've said it many times on this where healthcare's, I don't know what number we ended up, you know, saying, but 70 years behind manufacturing as far as our continuous improvement journey. It, it may be 170 years, I don't know. Um and, and what's crazy is is that US manufacturing is about 70 years behind Japanese manufacturing. So mm. you can see how, you know, because that's where all this really originated. So you can see how much work we have in front of us. Yeah, so we're, I guess we are, you know, 140, 150 <laughs> years behind that. <laughs> but, but you know, you mentioned that, you know, some organizations are going through the motions. They're kind of faking their way through continuous improvement using fake lean and, you know, some of those terms. What do you mean by by that when, you, when you're describing organizations that do that? Yeah, you know, uh, again, and, and uh, it's, it's funny because uh, when when my daughter and I were in the hospital, there was a certain time where she had to get up and walk around and, and uh, 
of course, the first thing we walked to was their, um, you know, information display board where they ha had their huddle meetings. And the first thing I look for are, you know, first of all, are the charts really up to date? Is all the, you know, all the information yeah. up to date? And in, in this case, it, it was fairly up to date. Second is, is uh, are, are the metrics really meaningful? In other words, uh, do they apply to anything that I do? If I'm if I'm a nurse working on that floor, uh, do I care about uh, this particular metric or that? In other words, how do how do I internalize that? Um, or, or are we just putting up things to make it look good with no real in, uh, incentive to uh, actually change anything? So that's that's what's meted mean is meant by the facade is, you know, you can go into an organization and they may say they're doing all these things. But when you really start digging into it and start examining what's happening, you soon discover that it's either uh, out of date, uh, fake information, not relevant to what's really going on. In other words, it almost has the feeling like people are checking boxes to say, you know, like, yes, we do huddle meetings, but we can't remember the last time that any of the ideas that were presented by any of the people in the huddles actually got implemented. Well, OK, that means that you're checking a box. You know, oh, yeah, we, we, we've heard huddle meetings are really effective. So let's start doing them without really understanding what it takes to turn those kind of things into reality. Really, really interesting. There's so many directions I want to go, John. Uh, you know, I think about even the the psychology of group dynamics because you know, just because we say we have 10 people doesn't mean we have a team. It means we have 10 people. You know, and, right. but but I know that in your book, I believe in your book, you talk about four styles of leadership. Uh, could you, at a high level, kind of let Dr. Lancaster and myself know what are these four styles of leadership? So uh, so I created a spectrum all the way on one side is dictator and on the other side is collaborator. All right. So if you can imagine that kind of a spectrum closest to the dictator side is style one, which is what I call the crisis leader. And uh, again, there is a time and a place for style one. So if you're in an organization that is in crisis mode. Uh, so it could be that, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself in the red as far as financials or you're you're experiencing a lot of customer complaints or or some, you know, uh, disaster happens that you have to recover from. Then you want a leader that is willing to step up, take charge, make the tough decisions and move the organization forward. Now, most workers understand that that's a necessity when you're in a crisis. The problem, though, is, is that if you stay in crisis mode for too long, people then start getting burned out and they start um, getting frustrated that they're no longer being listened to or heard. Uh, so a crisis leader style one needs to be very temporary. And this is one of the things. Well, uh, let me I'll come back to that in a minute, but I'll go ahead and describe the other leadership styles. Style two is the ideal gathering leader. So this is where a leader, you know, you're, you're, you're just coming out of crisis mode and you start asking people for their ideas for how to make things better. Now, why is this important? Well, one, it starts engaging the brains 
of all the workers, and it starts getting them to think about the future instead of dwelling on all the problems of the past. So this is a very important step. Style three is the team uh, leader, a leader who is willing to start creating the teams, supporting the teams, sponsoring the teams, and giving teams meaningful things to work on to help uh, move the ball forward when it comes to making improvement happen. And then the final style is the style four, the empowerment leader, someone who is willing to empower a team to act on problems as they occur real time closest to the process. Now that requires a lot of trust. It requires a lot of training. It requires a lot of uh, information sharing. Um, but at that point, the leader is basically allowing the team to make decisions when it comes to um, real time problem solving. Um, and I tell you, I've, helped, uh, I've worked in several organizations where the leaders have gotten to that style for, and it's amazing. I mean, those are great, great places to work. The morale is very high. Um, the employees feel like they're part of a winning team. And I mean, they would knock walls down for you because they're so engaged and so uh, much a part of the success of that organization. So think about this for a moment. When an organization, uh, you know, it's not entirely linear. You may start at style one crisis leader, move to idea generation leader, move to team leader, and then all of a sudden another crisis hits and you have to go back to style one for a short period of time before you can move back to style two, style three, and style four. Think about what COVID has done to all yeah. of the organizations in the, in the world, really. You may have had several organizations that had migrated to style three, the team leader, or style four, the empowerment leader, before COVID. And then all of a sudden, for the last two, two and a half years, we've had to be back in crisis mode. And I truly believe that's the root cause for why you hear about the quiet quitting and the great resignation and people are, are getting burned out and they're trying to find an organization that has moved on from the crisis uh, leader mode to the team and empowerment leader mode. Because once you've experienced working in that culture and that environment, you don't want to go back. That, so, that's fascinating. I was I was going to ask the exact same question before you just you know, described, you know, the, the COVID years, because I feel like I've seen that a lot and read the same articles in healthcare, we're experiencing higher levels of burnout than ever before. And it does feel like we are staying in crisis mode and unable to evolve to the next leadership style. Um, yeah, let me interrupt you real quick, because you, you would ask then, why are we still in crisis mode, even though most people feel like COVID is somewhat behind us? You know, not entirely, yeah. but definitely not like it was last few years. And this is an important point. Um, leaders tend to get rewarded and recognized the most when they're in crisis leadership, style one. Hmm. Right. 
because if you are making all the tough decisions and you're shouldering all the responsibility and all of the burden, then you're being recognized by the higher ups in the organization as someone who we no longer can live without because that leader is now making all the tough decisions and man alive if that person were to ever leave us we would be in a world of hurt so we better shower that person with rewards recognition bonuses uh all you know all those kind of things and guess what that does it reinforces that leader to want to stay in crisis mode even though that is burning out the entire rest of the organization so it's a short term uh high at the expense of the destruction of the entire rest of the organization and and that's why it's so critically important to try to figure out how to get out of that crisis mode as soon as possible and it it could it could easily start by pulling the highest level people in the organization together and discuss how do we start getting the organization to move to style two and then to style three and then to style four and make it part of the strategy for the next several months. No, I mean, exactly what you just said, just it hits really close to home. I can you know, the early years of the, the COVID pandemic were all hands on deck, you know, meeting every day to go over data. You know, I was presenting at board meetings you know, weekly and things of that nature and certainly was. It was a yeah, it was a short term high for sure, and it's hard to move on from. So, you know, it would, would love to, to hear more just about that um, continuum about how to move from crisis all the way up the chain yeah so so you know one of the questions i like to ask is is um in any organization what is the criteria that is being used to promote future leaders and what is the criteria being used to reward and recognize current leaders and if the answer is uh, something in the vein of, well, we reward and recognize the best firefighters or the uh, people who can, uh, uh, you know, tackle problems the fastest or can make the tough decisions. That means you're stuck in level one crisis mode and you're not going to get out anytime soon. So that's the that's the key step there is to say, OK, we recognize we've been in crisis for the last two, two and a half years. It's now time to redefine what a good leader in our organization looks like, acts like, the you know, culture creations, all those kind of things, and then communicate that to all the leaders that, hey, the definition of a good leader is changing. And here's the new definition. Um, that that we're we're moving towards, and you need to start thinking in those ways. John, as you've done the research and you've studied and you've reflected, um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on where we find ourselves today. Because in past, you would hear about crises that organizations might be facing in their industry, they uh, might be facing it in their company, but 
we're, we seem to be finding ourselves in a different time. You know, the quiet quitting and the, the great resignation. I mean, even at the time of this recording, you just had uh, Google and Amazon and uh, several large company do thousands and thousands of layoffs, you know. And um, and so we seem to find ourselves in a unique situation in history of where the market seems to be speaking and we're trying to understand what it's telling us. Um, I mean, what are some of your thoughts about that, even as you were writing the book or even now that the book's been written? I mean, what are some of your reflections of where we find ourselves really more than just an industry? Because I don't know that healthcare is unique in what we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing turnover rates at organizations across the nation and across the world perhaps like we've never seen. What are your what are your thoughts on that? So so think about this, right? You know, the the longer an organization is in crisis mode, the uh, more um, destructive that is to process and systems within that organization. One of my favorite quotes from Dr. Deming is a bad system will beat a good person every time, right? So if I'm in crisis mode, then I am basically in survival mode. I am doing everything I can to keep my head above water. And I'm not taking the time to look at the way we do things or the, the systems and processes and saying, how can we do that better? Um, so. I, I, and, and eventually, those systems and processes begin to uh, deteriorate, and then that just adds more work to the workers who are already burned out from being in the crisis mode. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a great example, and this is this is pretty minor, but it 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 also I think really illustrates what I'm talking about. In the hospital room that we were in last week, uh, the uh, there was a, a container on the wall where the latch clearly had broken at some point and somebody had used some masking tape to try to tape it back up to the wall and the tape kept breaking and the nurse would have to come in and retape it back up on the wall every so often. Well, you know, that's not part of her job description. That's not value added or when it comes to caring for uh, a patient. But it's a necessity because with that falling off the wall, you know, someone could get hurt. Somebody could get, you know, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't function the way it's supposed to function. So uh, we're for the last two and a half years, we've been using masking tape to tape things on the wall in order to get by and survive versus breaking that cycle and saying, all right, every day for 30 minutes, you know, we're gonna ask the first shift nurses to come in 30 minutes early every day for the next period of time and just focus on those 30 minutes, going through the rooms, going through the hallways, cleaning things up, fixing things, improving things, figuring out how to uh, how to make things run smoother, make things run better, um, to try to break us out of this firefighting death spiral. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it really does, John. I, I'm, I'm also really surprised at how fast our time has went. But yeah, it makes all the sense in the world, actually. You, as you were talking, it made me think about the great principle that Dr. Deming would always talk about, that constancy of purpose, you know. And so, well, John, thank you so much for visiting with us today, giving us your thoughts, your reflections. Uh, for our audience out there, once again, the book is called The Facade of Excellence, Defining a New Normal of Leadership by John Dyer. John, thank you so much on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare uh, for doing the great work that you do and, and for joining us today to share some of your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.